0: Man, Jay, Krakoa, you know, the island that walks like a man,
1: has been through a lot of changes. Sure has, Miles. It's gone from setting, to villain, to landscaping feature, to Quentin Quire's best friend. And now it's a mutant nation! It's THE mutant nation. Every mutant gets automatic citizenship.
0: Wait, even the depowered
1: ones? The the ones who got depowered by the Scarlet Witch during M-Day? Yeah, of course. Heck, they can even get their powers back if they want.
0: So they figured out a way to reverse the M-Day effect?
1: At least as a byproduct of some other protocols, yeah. It's become a whole ritual thing. Oh, okay, kind of like the Inhumans' Terra Genesis. Not so much. See, if a depowered mutant wants their powers back, they have to duel Apocalypse.
0: Wait, Apocalypse is on Krakoa? With the X-Men?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. He's part of the central government and everything.
0: And to get their powers back, depowered mutants have to, what, fight some kind of symbolic duel with him?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. But you just said- It's not a symbolic duel. To get their powers back, depowered mutants have to straight-up duel Apocalypse, the oldest, arguably most powerful mutant on the block, to the death. Wait, how does that- And lose. WHAT?! Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 307 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And welcome, miraculously, to another episode of our post-Age of Apocalypse coverage. I still can't believe we got through it. There was so much. Honestly, I kinda miss it. I do too. It was It was really good. But there's some good stuff after it too. Like the stuff we'll be talking about in this episode.
1: Yeah, but Onslaught. Well, yeah,
0: what can you do? One thing that is awesome is your Cyclops comic. It's coming out like only a few days after this episode does.
1: Yes, that is X- Men Marvel's Snapshots number one. Uh, it's, it's a one shot, but it's still technically number one. Um, it is out on Wednesday, September 16th in a comic shop near you and also probably on the internets. And listeners, I recognize
0: that I'm biased, but Jay gave me a reviewer copy, which is one of the magical powers that, that Jay has. I mean, I, I just, I asked the PR guy. Well, uh, thanks to the PR guy, and to you. But I read it, and, okay, it's it's really good. It's really, really, really good, and I'm so excited for people to have a chance to read it.
1: I am still kind of freaking out over, well, a, a lot of things about it, so it's, it's, it's drawn, um, Tom Riley did the line art, Chris Halloran is the colors. They are phenomenal. Like I I cannot imagine a better art team to have worked with on this. It was it was such a, an incredible experience and I love the final book so much. But the really big thing is that um Tom Worskowski lettered it. He's lettered like a lot of the X-Men.
0: Like, a lot, a lot, a lot of the X-Men. He's the one who was able to get Claremont dialogue to actually fit inside speech bubbles.
1: Yeah, this is not nearly that wordy, but it still feels like a really big deal. So, yeah, um, so that's out this Wednesday, and if you like the ways that I talk about the things that I talk about on the show, and specifically, you know, my angles on Cyclops since it's very much just a Cyclops story, if it's the kind of thing that it seems like you would like, um, you should get it, and if not, I mean, I would appreciate it if you did anyway, but no pressure there.
0: Well, I think you'll like it. I'm biased, like I said, though.
1: I mean, I like it, but...
0: Alright, well, we can't talk about that this whole episode because we've got entirely different stuff to talk about. Specifically, as promised in the next time from last episode, we're going to talk about Generation X, but not just Generation X.
1: Ooh, there is actually one incredibly specific point of overlap.
0: Between Cyclops and the Generation X we're talking about?
1: Actually, it's in the Cable comic that we're talking about, but yes.
0: Uh, That's true, and I know what you're talking about. But I'm not going to say what it is. Uh, But yes, as you just referred to, Jay, we are going to be talking about an issue of Cable as well. Because even though the Uncanny episode we did recently focuses on Gene Nation, in a way, this Generation X story focuses even more on them. And the Cable issue that we're going to be talking about is a nice little prelude to that.
1: They focus on different points of them. This Cable issue also extends and wraps up, um, a plotline that we saw started back in X-Force.
0: We did indeed. And that brings us not to Generation X quite yet, but instead to Cable number 15, Shadows.
1: Whoa, we didn't even do any previously backstory for Cable. It's way too complicated, most of it isn't relevant, and the parts that are relevant are covered in the issue. For those of you just tuning in to, you know, Cable existing, he is the adult, time-displaced son of Cyclops and Madeline Pryor herself, a clone of Jean Grey. Cable was raised primarily in the future by Scott and Jean, but in different bodies, who got pulled into the future on their honeymoon by the far future... A time-split version of their daughter Rachel Summers in one of her last gestures before she was comatose for a really long time and then died, shunting them back into the past when Cable was around 12. He continued to grow up in the far future, finally made his way back to the past, and was eventually identified as Nathan Christopher Summers, the aforementioned kid of, you know, Scott and Madeline, who Scott and Jean had raised, and it's a little awkward, but they're all kind of settling into it.
0: Clear? Of course it is. Crystal. X-Men. Who created this
1: issue? So this is Cable 15, Shadows, it is written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by David Brewer, inked by Comrade, Champagne, and Banning, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. And it features a lot of very muscular people yelling.
0: It really, really does. Yeah, David Brewer's art is very muscle and yelling forward.
1: Now, you, you, you talked about this book in context of Gene Nation, and Gene Nation, we're going to learn ...are the survivors and the descendants of the Morlocks. So the the book starts with with basically a recap of what happened to the Morlocks in Uncanny X-Men 293. This was when Mikhail Rasputin, Colossus's trash older brother... ...decided that the best way to deal with all of their collective problems was large-scale murder-suicide.
0: So he used his reality warping powers to essentially flood the Morlock tunnels... ...theoretically killing everyone. We haven't
1: seen the Morlocks since. Now, we get most of this from the point of view of Thorn. Thorn is the older sister of Feral, who was briefly a member of X-Force and then went off because she decided that murder was way, way better than friendship. So, Thorn fled when this happened, and she went back specifically to try to rescue Sarah. Sarah is a sweet little kid um, who who everyone loved, who loved everyone, who was, was the youngest of the Morlocks, and Thorne got to her, but Sarah was pulled away by The Current. And I, and then there's there's a splash page of, of Thorne in, in The Current, and I just want to state for the record, in terms of comics art, that for mo- in, in the vast majority of cases, including this one, if a reader has to spend more than like a brief glance looking at a page to determine that something isn't pubic hair, you fucked up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the the art I feel like gets way better over the course of the issue, but it does start out kind of rough. Sarah is interesting because Sarah is this character we learn is very important to not just Thorn, but all of the Morlocks. And this flashback is the first time we've ever seen her or heard her mentioned. She's a brand new creation, just sort of retconned in as a significant figure.
1: She is going to prove a significant figure along multiple vectors, both in the version of her that comes back to the present, and we'll learn in her past before Mikhail Rasputin. For now though, we get the greater setting to the, the current story here, and that is that at long damn last, Cable and Domino are going on a date. Now. They appeared to have been dating for a long time at the beginning of X-Force End of New Mutants, but it turned out that that wasn't actually Domino. That was Copycat, a shapeshifter who was pretending to be Domino. So Domino's been back. It's kind of awkward. They're finally going to try to actually do this thing.
0: And I really appreciate the scenes of both Cable and Domino getting ready for this date. This apparently extremely fancy date, because each of them is hanging out with a member of X-Force and talking through the whole thing. For Cable, it's Cannonball.
1: I love Cannonball. Cannonball is such a good wingman and also so good at just sort of automatically falling into older brother role. Like, yeah, you know, Cable's kind of his default father figure, but he's also nervous about going on a date. Sam's going to make damn sure he knows to come back in time.
0: Oh, it's, it's great. One of the things I really enjoy about Cable and Cannonball's relationship is how much it shifts over the course of X-Force as a whole, or at least the part of X-Force that Cannonball's around for, since, as we know, he just left for the X-Men. They're they're much more peers than they used to be.
1: Yeah, I feel like a lot of later New Mutants and the first large chunk of X-Force is kind of Cannonball's coming-of-age story.
0: Uh, I completely agree, yeah. In the same way that, um, you know, much of the rest of New Mutants is the rise and fall of Lyanna Rasputin, like, those two series put together, I think, are a little bit more about Cannonball.
1: Yeah, we should also say as we're talking about New Mutants. Um, I haven't seen the movie yet. Have you?
0: Uh, no, I, I haven't because I um that that's that that's not safe. And apparently, enough people believe it's not safe that it's actually not playing within a drive of me. So uh, even if I did want to go into a theater, I couldn't.
1: Also, there are some complicated and very good ethical and critical. Uh, responses to the movie that I'd recommend looking up um, that sound very well done. I am I am in the really weirdly lucky timing thing whereby the by virtue of snapshots getting delayed, um, my my period of conflict of interest whereby I cannot actually get gigs reviewing Marvel stuff has been extended. So this is the first X-Men related movie in years that I have not had to review, and it's very, very exciting for me.
0: Congratulations.
1: So maybe I just won't watch it. Oh God, I could I could get away with that.
0: I kind of want to see it, even if everything's wrong with it. I've been waiting so long.
1: Anyway, um, back to cable number 15. So, I, y- you mentioned that the art gets better, um, but but one of the things that it it does when, when you see the actual outfits, I do not understand how the fabric of that dress is interacting with Domino's butt.
0: Um, unstable molecules, obviously. No, it actually works out really well, because the dress that Domino is wearing, to her extremely fancy date, It's actually more like a skin-tight jumpsuit with just sort of a shawl draped around her butt, and given that it's a Marvel comic, so of course any date will turn into an adventure, and she's gonna need to move around a lot, that's actually quite practical. Oh,
1: if the fabric's sheer, I guess that kind of makes sense. Uh, yes, yes,
0: I'm assuming it's just sheer, and Domino's butt does indeed make sense.
1: I have a lot of trouble telling the difference between things that are intended to be sheer and things that are just someone forgetting to erase lines.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely a thing in comics, in general.
1: Alright, so, this date is just goddamn adorable. They go to a super fancy restaurant, it's incredibly awkward, and Domino decides they should play, like, getting-to-know-you games. Oh, it's freaking great! You're stranded on a desert island.
0: I've been stranded on a desert island. It wasn't any
1: fun. Shut up and listen. You can only have with you one book, one piece of music and just one other person, who, and what, would you bring?
0: The book would have to be The Art of War by- I
1: know who it's by.
0: And I'd pick Sinatra at the Sands, 1966.
1: Interesting.
0: And I'd want Scott to be there, my dad.
1: Nathan, you surprise me.
0: Because if anyone could figure out how to get us off that island, it'd be Scott.
1: Um then it gets really, really awkward because he mixes up her taste in music with you know, Vanessa's. But um I, I, I wanna point point out also that before they got off of that island, um, they would definitely both end up in tiny cutoffs and also probably have to have a real awkward conversation about Lee Forrester. Uh
0: well it depends on when that happened, because at this point in Cable's continuity, he has not, in fact, made out with the same lady that his dad made out with. That comes later. I actually just read that issue a few days ago. It's weird.
1: Well, it depends on when they get stuck on the desert island.
0: I'm just saying. But I was thinking about this. So, you know, it's a really basic getting-to-know-you game. It's extremely reductive. You have to totally overgeneralize. But, Jay, what about you? What book, what album, and what person?
1: Ooh. Like, if it's the the thought experiment version, obviously T is the answer, because, like, she's the person I'd want to spend time with there. But, you know, if it's the actual practical stuff, I'd want, like, a book with, you know... The big survival guide, and um, <laughs> probably a musical instrument. If, if if I'm going just with favorites, I'll I'll say uh, Midnight Hour Encore by Bruce Brooks, a decent recording of the Fifth Brandenburg Concerto, and NT. Yeah, legit. I was torn on the music. Um, Yo-Yo Ma doing Bach solo cello suites would be a very very close second. It's going to be Bach either way though. Nice, nice.
0: I was thinking about this, too, and I think, okay, so if it's going to be a comic, because I feel like we have to answer that, uh, The Omnibus of Walter Simonson's Thor, I could get lost in that forever. If not, House of Leaves, which, while it would unravel my mind, would at least give me a book to really, really dig into that's extremely complicated while I was on this desert island. For an album, Nine Inch Nails the Fragile. And, you know, like you said, you sort of have to choose your partner, so Anna. But if I was being practical, Cyclops, for the same reason that Cable chose Cyclops. You know he's not a real person, right? It's a thought experiment. That's fine.
1: Oh, well, if we get to do comics, hmm. If we we get to do comics, I'm going to have to go with, um, Finder Talisman.
0: Legit. Very, very good choice. Okay, anyway, back in this comic...
1: Luckily for Cable and Domino, their awkward, awkward date conversation is interrupted by Thorn. And she brings them back to more familiar, comfortable territory, namely fights and resurrections.
0: Good old X-Men topics. Uh, We should note that this takes place in continuity, a bit back from where we are. So this is before Thorn got arrested at the end of the Kaya Santos arc in X-Force, but after she left the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants.
1: Okay. Now thorn is here because she has been seeing sarah that cute little morlock kid in the tunnels and hearing sarah say that mikhail took them to another place but the other morlocks are scared to come out until someone performs the ceremony of the light and i i love that domino actually calls the like worst date ever situation because usually x-men just run with this domino's like what the fuck i'm going home
0: That's kinda Domino's deal though, like, one of the things I like about the character is that she's willing to call out when things are bullshit, which in the Marvel Universe is much of the time.
1: It's hilarious that at this point I think of that as a fourth wall adjacent power, just because of the things that other characters (laughs) interpret as normal. I mean, we've already established that Cable is firmly his father's son, like, this is pretty much par for any kind of nice dinner out.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: But so the Ceremony of Light,
0: I actually really like this concept. It is a new concept. It's yet another retcon uh, along with Sarah herself. But the idea is that every, was it every year or every multiple years? Every every year. Every year, the Morlocks would do this thing where they would position a whole bunch of mirrors and shards of glass, et cetera, et cetera, to reflect the light from the surface world all the way down into the Morlock tunnels. And as they did this, they would think about a theoretical day someday in the future where they would be welcomed by the surface people with open arms. In a way, it contradicts the way the Morlocks have been portrayed in the past because in the past, they've been extremely bitter, but at the same time, I kind of like the idea of them just taking one day to be like, all right, let's just be naively optimistic and think that maybe someday things are going to be okay.
1: Now, It doesn't work, or rather it works in that it it illuminates the Morlock tunnels briefly, but tiny spectral Sarah appears only for a moment and only for long enough to tell Thorne that, well, the others are too scared, but she promises she'll come back someday, which, oh, she certainly will.
0: She absolutely will. And in fact, the reason that we're talking about this issue now is that Sarah will turn out to grow up into Marrow, one of the most brutal, significant members of Gene Nation, the group of Morlocks who are killing a whole bunch of humans in 1995 X-Men continuity.
1: And who will later go on to join the X-Men.
0: So I gotta ask, Jay, do we think it's more effective to have Marrow be this new, newly created retconned character, or should she have been a formerly existing Morlock who was in a minor role, or even a major role?
1: I think this had to be a new character, because there weren't really any Morlocks who could have effectively played this role. I think for a lot of reasons it needs to have been a kid, because they need to grow up to a functionally unrecognizable form or state, and the only really named kid who readers would be likely to key in on at all who'd been associated previously with the Morlocks as Leech. Yeah,
0: and he, uh, that would be way too much of a transformation for Leech, and also there was the fact that Leech wasn't one of the Morlocks who, uh, got theoretically killed when Mikhail flooded the tunnels. He was off at boarding school.
1: Exactly. I think retconning makes way, way more sense, and I think it's a pretty easy thing to do just because at this point... I mean, can you name all of the members, of, even all of the named members of the Morlocks who were in the tunnels when Mikhail flooded them? I can't. It
0: was mostly just monster-y looking people who didn't have names from what I recall. Most of the ones with names were already dead.
1: Yeah, that's the thing.
0: Okay, so related question. This is a story about the Morlocks that happens in an issue of Cable, and Cable's a character who traditionally hasn't been very associated with the Morlocks. Do you think this story would have worked better with a character with her own history, with the Morlocks, like Storm discovering this whole thing?
1: I do not, because Storm would not have let it go. I agree, and actually for the same reason.
0: like Something like this would be way too defining for a character like Storm. And if that's where you want to go with it, fine. But if you just want to plant this little seed that characters are just going to say, huh, At, it's got to be somebody who's only really involved because it's the right thing to do, not because it's personal.
1: Well, and I think, too, that pulling the Morlocks away from Storm is a narrative choice that makes a lot of sense. As Callisto will eventually and repeatedly point out in canon, Storm has conquered, taken responsibility for, and then abandoned the Morlocks more than once. And putting her in the position of being the one to save or revive them, I think, isn't a cool narrative choice.
0: Yeah, yeah. And certainly we'll see Storm and Callisto yell about that lots in the future, so it's not like we're going to be denied that uh, dramatic possibility. So that's cable number 15. Not all that consequential, but you can definitely tell they were waiting to set up the Return of the Morlocks, Sarah as a significant character, the Ceremony of Light, which we saw again in X-Men Prime number one when Mera was performing it and then murdered some random guy who was hanging out nearby.
1: Who might who might or might not have created Garfield.
0: All right, who was, of course, Jim Davis. So let's talk about Gene Nation from an entirely different perspective. Let's jump forward to 1995, where the podcast is currently covering, and talk about Generation X number five, Don't Touch That Dial, and Generation X number six, Notes from the Underground, both of which, mercifully, have the same creative team. They're written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Chris Picello, inked by Mark Buckingham, colored by Steve Buccalato and Electric Cran, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. But before we get to that, we need to give all of you a great deal of backstory, specifically about Generation X.
1: Okay, so first, once upon a time long long ago there were the X-Men, nominally the strangest teens of them all, actually pretty par for the course for superheroes. But then the X-Men weren't teens
0: anymore, so Professor X recruited the New Mutants, the most traumatized teens of all.
1: Uh, which title they gained largely thanks to him.
0: They got older and started following around a cyborg named Cable and yelling all the time, so it was time for a new team of young mutants.
1: Which brings us to Generation X, the teams with the weirdest slash grossest powers, which I
0: really love. While the X-Men and the New Mutants were both initially taught by Professor Xavier, Generation X has a pair of new teachers.
1: Sean Cassidy, formerly Banshee of the X-Men, aka the adult in the
0: room, and Emma Frost, formerly the White Queen of the Hellfire Club and former teacher of her own team of now-sadly-deceased teenagers, the Hellions. So,
1: let's go over who we've got in the lineup these days. Who, who are the members of Generation X, the team, who may or may not be members of Generation X, the generation, depending on where we are in Marvel time.
0: Well, first off, we have a couple of teenagers we've known for a while, starting with the wise-cracking plasma burst-generating Jubilation Lee, aka Jubilee, formerly of the
1: X-Men. We've also got Paige Guthrie-Husk, that's Cannonball's super ambitious kid sister, and she can tear off her skin to reveal different skin. Ew. Oh, it's super gross. I, again, like, this team is, is one of those teams where it sort of delves into the- but what about the other powers?
0: Right? Well, most of the team is relatively new.
1: Okay, so we've got Everett Thomas, sync, and he can synchronize with nearby mutants and mimic their powers. His powers are actually a lot like mimics, but they involve a sort of fancy, um, computer-colored plasma field, sort of.
0: It's rainbow. It's very pretty. Then we've got Angelo Espinosa, Skin, who has lots of prehensile, extra skin. Also, bleh!
1: I love his power. I really, like, I love Skin's power. It's so awful and great, and, yeah. Anyway, rounding out the team is Monet Sankwa, M, um, and she is the a perfect addition to any team because she's perfect. She's strong and tough and smart and beautiful and also telepathic, and I think she's telekinetic. She can fly. Uh, she can,
0: yeah. I don't know that all of her powers have been revealed yet, but boy howdy, does she have a lot of them.
1: Yeah, right now she's also technically two people in one body, but that hasn't been officially revealed in the comic yet.
0: Uh, very true. And the last official member of the team is Jonathan Starsmore, Chamber, a glum Brit who can shoot psionic energy out of his upper torso, and who blew off his lower jaw and the top of his chest the first time he tried to do so. A third time, I say, Ugh!
1: He kinda rocks it, though. Um, and And he also speaks with a phonetic British accent and slang that I'm pretty sure that real British people have never actually used, for the most part.
0: I know we have at least a couple real British people who listen to the show, so uh, tell us what you think. Does Chambers sound like an actual human being who might live from around there?
1: I mean, he sounds like someone… he sounds like the British equivalent of someone trying to write teenagers based on the slang they have seen the teenagers use and possibly searching some things on Urban Dictionary.
0: Well, given that Stan Lee started the X-Men and Claremont continued them, that sounds about right.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an amazing legacy so so who's the final final teen i don't know if she's really a team member at this point but she's she's around and she's a teenager so she might as well be
0: that is penance a mysterious red girl with razor sharp skin who doesn't talk but does love apples
1: she gets along pretty well with butterflies too she does
0: Additionally around, god we have a lot of characters, is Gateway, the also silent aboriginal teleporter who we met way back in the X-Men's Outback era, and who's been hanging out at Gen X's school for some reason.
1: He's got some history with Monet, but again, we're not going to find out the details of that for a pretty long time. Before the Age of Apocalypse, Generation X had a grand total of four issues. Um, now they're back, and I guess it's business as usual. So we we've, th- we've got a couple different parallel plot lines going on. The team is currently split up. We're going to follow each of those in turn. Let's
0: start out with Chamber and Husk, but even before we jump in there, can I just say how excited I am to get back to Generation X after the Age of Apocalypse? I've read almost none of this and goddamn, this is some of the best Chris Bicello art I have ever seen.
1: You know what I really love about coming into it here? What's that? Our sense of these characters at this point is equally defined by the Age of Apocalypse as it is by the beginning of the Generation X proper series. We've had exactly the same amount of each.
0: That's very true, yeah. So we get the canonical versions of these characters from Gen X number one through four, and then the sort of like Spock with a beard, Mirror Universe, everything is terrible versions of some of them from Generation Next in Age of Apocalypse. Let's start out with what Chamber is up to. And what Chamber is up to is being a very teenagery teenager.
1: Yeah, what is Chamber ever up to? He's brooding,
0: obviously. He is, but what I appreciate is that since he's hanging out indoors in the basement where he spends all his time away from the adults who just don't understand, he's wearing his jeans, his leather jacket, his chains, his gothy leather face wrap, and then he's just in his socks. Like, I know you're not supposed to wear shoes indoors so this makes sense, but it's so incongruous and adorable.
1: I will confess that that is a very J. Eddin outfit. Yeah, okay, I totally believe that. Like, Uh, down down to the, and socks.
0: (laughs) So, Chamber's down here watching TV and just throwing out that British slang that you mentioned as very implausible, but suddenly, Gateway, in all of his tiny, squinty, maybe kind of offensively caricatured glory, suddenly Gateway's down there hanging out and messing with the TV.
1: Gateway likes Disney movies more than he likes violence, which is, you know, or or whatever the hell Chamber's into. Gateway also is here to have a psionic conversation with Chamber, who who has low-key telepathic powers. And I really dislike Gateway's telepathic voice, because he basically talks like Warlock, and he talks the way people who don't really have a sense of how people who speak English as a second language tend to speak write non-native english speakers like it's a weird sort of computer-y baby talky voice and i'm not a fan but he is what he's down here to tell chamber specifically is that paige is super fucked up about the legacy virus. she is having a rough night and chamber needs to get his ass upstairs and be a good friend
0: it's interesting that gateway is telepathically talking with chamber because that means that theoretically he could have done so with any telepath and he's been around psylocke a ton back in the outback era of x-men And he's around Emma Frost a lot right now. So, I don't know, why do you think that he's only choosing to talk to Chamber and hasn't chosen to talk to either of them?
1: I'd like to believe that Gateway likes fucking with people.
0: There could be that. There could be that.
1: It could also be that he's more apt to be sympathetic to and communicative with younger characters with kids.
0: That's possible, yeah, and the fact is he's right. I mean, Paige is all messed up, we're gonna learn that she just found out about the legacy virus. She's usually a very driven, optimistic character, and I get that, I'm an optimist myself, and so when really bad stuff happens, it hits me super, super hard. So, uh, yeah, Gateway is wise, he's come to the right person, and Chamber does indeed go off to talk to Husk, leaving Gateway to switch Beavis and Butthead to Beauty and the Beast. Wait a minute, Beavis and Butthead, Beauty and the Beast. Is the Bold and the Beautiful next? Is this just all about shows that start with B and B?
1: This episode is brought to you by the letter B, and the letter B.
0: That it is. Husk is drunk. Husk is drunk on one beer.
1: That is the least surprising thing.
0: It totally is unsurprising, yeah. And man, the way she's talking, I'll see what I can do. I'm not going to go into like super exaggerated drunk, but... Ms. Guthrie? Ma'am? I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. Seems we're gonna have to cancel your life on account of you being a mutant and all. Nothing personal. Just turns out there's this here legacy virus disease thing. What kills mutants? Mostly mutants. So hipso factoid. Please take your hat and coat and don't let the pearly gates hit you on the way in.
1: I love drunk page lettering so i i oh today by the way is lettering appreciation day letterer appreciation day as we record this um september 1st so i'm going to talk about the lettering here this is this is a good opportunity to do that one of the things i tend to say a lot about lettering is that when it's done right you don't really notice it unless you're looking for it, um, and and I, I tend to be. And I've, I've I've grumped on this on this show before about about doing overly stylized lettering. This is one of the points where that works. Drunk pages lettering is terrific, and it's one of those times where playing with the shapes and colors of letters really makes a ton of narrative sense and really conveys the feeling that you couldn't otherwise.
0: Absolutely agreed. Yeah. I've exaggerated lettering sometimes bothers me, but Richard Starkings is a master of it. And in fact, one of my jobs at work is to purchase fonts from various font foundries to use in comics. And Comicraft is one of the biggest foundries out there. Richard Starkings is one of the people central to it. I believe he's the founder of it.
1: Yeah, Comicraft and Blambot are, I think, the two largest um, sort of foundries for, for specifically comic lettering fonts these days this is fun it's a really really well done balloon and it's one of the things that you'll notice if you look over to the visual companion is that it doesn't affect the legibility or the pacing at all like you can clearly see what it's saying you can and and you can get from again the 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 lettering styles a clear sense of the inflection in it
0: it's great but it makes sense i mean it it's a little weird to me that Paige hadn't heard of the legacy virus before
1: yeah that struck me too Maybe it's just that
0: we, the readers, have been hammered over the head with it so much so we just assume everybody knows. But it makes sense that it's hitting her this hard. She's wondering, what's the point of anything? What's the point of all the effort that she's been putting forth if you can just die out of nowhere for no reason?
1: And Chamber you know, walks her through throwing up and cleaning up. He scolds her, but he's basically a, a good friend about it. And also extremely, extremely entertained at how... Absolutely horrifically messy her room is, and Paige, for her part, has some other ideas. Chamber says, You would have to straighten up to earn a mess. Maybe you spent less time studying?
0: Maybe, Jonathan. I just ain't found something more interesting than studying. Yet.
1: Paige, you're drunk.
0: Am I, Jono? Yeah, you are. And we cut away, and... You know, it's an awkward scene. It also reads as very teenage real, in both good ways and bad. Aw, oh,
1: teenagers.
0: Banshee, meanwhile, being even more handsome than usual somehow, is hanging out in the Danger Grotto, the Massachusetts Academy's equivalent of the Danger Room, with penance.
1: Ooh, question. Can, can we say that Chris Pichallo, Banshee, is parallel to Alan Davis Nightcrawler?
0: Uh, yes, yes. Those are both characters that are handsome to begin with, but under the pen, well, pencil, of those artists become breathtaking.
1: Ooh, and they both wear turtlenecks well.
0: Maybe that's the secret. You have to be drawn by an amazing, iconic artist, and you have to wear a turtleneck. I'm going to try to do both of those, but uh, maybe once it's less summery out.
1: Good luck, my friend. Good luck.
0: Banshee's been going through language textbooks, one after another, trying to find some language that Penance will understand or at least respond to. My take, though, I think she's just a cat, basically. It's not that she doesn't understand, she just doesn't give a shit. She's just hanging out near a person and ignoring
1: them. I mean, she's really in it for the apples he's handing her.
0: There is that. What Banshee's in it for, aside from just being a decent, handsome guy, is trying to find excuses to not talk to... Dr. Moira McTaggart, his ex-girlfriend, and as the world has recently learned, the first human, well, hmm, everyone thinks she's human, to have been infected by the legacy virus. He doesn't know what to say, so he's just trying to direct his compassion in a different direction where he does know what to do, or at least where it's lower stakes.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: As he heads home, though, he finds that Penance was paying at least some attention because she's already there, sitting on the top of his fridge thus adding evidence to my theory that she is, in fact, a very sharp red cat.
1: Okay, so you say, but apparently also high-percentage wolf dogs will do that? Really? That's yeah, and I am never
0: going to stop finding that hilarious. Oh, geez, although if they're high-percentage wolf dogs, then they're probably, like, maybe not super safe to be around, so uh, if you see a high-percentage wolf dog or penance on top of your fridge, uh, maybe back away slowly.
1: I mean, I would argue that penance is probably more likely to accidentally severely injure you, but no, I mean, with with, with high percentage wolf dogs, like, knowing how to handle them properly and knowing how to do things like establish um, pack structure... And how wolves work as opposed to how dog work, dogs work, because they're very different, is really important, and I have very strong feelings about people who get wolf dogs and don't know this stuff. But that's not the point here. <laughs> the point is that if you do, you know, I assume, fill all these qualifications, know what you're getting into, have, you know, a, a, a very wolfy wolf dog who lives in your home, you may theoretically sometimes come home and find it sitting on top of your refrigerator, which is never not hilarious when I imagine it.
0: You know, I heard from the first Wolverine movie that there's an old Native American legend that wolverines would sit on top of your refrigerator before they howled at the moon.
1: Fuck you and fuck that movie.
0: I love it so much. And you do, too.
1: <laughs> I do, I do. um, I, I do. And I love it largely for, for the fact that only the prop department had any idea that wolverines weren't wolves.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, all of that very much aside... It's just a nice little charming scene and not much happens. But one of the things I like about Generation X as a comic is that storytelling wise, it takes the time to create these little connections. New Mutants was always above all else about the connections between the characters, about the fact that any two of the characters had a very defined and also evolving dynamic between them. So is Generation X and visually every single panel, every single page is a chance for Chris Picello just to throw in all these little details. Like there's a note on the fridge. Saying that Sean has to buy chocolate milk for Terry. There are still moving boxes everywhere, because remember, Generation X just got started at this long-abandoned school. Oh, it is a visual delight.
1: Well, and Javins, because this is this is in particular, and I think Penance is a great opportunity to really use color. Well, in general, this is this is a comic that tends to be really bright. Like this is an era where I think of comics being sort of not not exactly dull and desaturated, but at least cacophonous, and Generation X just feels really cleanly bright.
0: Yeah, which won't always be the case with Bocello's art. There's a period, I think about ten years later, where his art is just a bunch of shapes banging into each other for a while.
1: Oh yeah, I think I think of that as the, the Etch-a-Sketch-on-a-bumpy-bus period.
0: Pretty much, but this is great. So, let's talk about the main part of these two issues of Generation X, namely, the parts that feature more of Generation X. So Jubilee, Sink, M, and Skin are hanging out in New York City. They're taking in the sights. they're buying some apples for penance, since that's basically all they know about her. And in Jubilee's case, they are getting knocked down by the Fantastic Four's Thing, who is pursued by a crowd of excited fans. And I love this. I love the idea that this sort of thing just happens in New York City. Like you're doing something totally mundane, and then, I don't know, like fucking stilt man comes walking through on his way to submit a job application somewhere.
1: On stilts, because you know he does. Of course. Uh,
0: Also, I really appreciate that the Thing has no idea who Jubilee is. Like, Jubilee's a wonderful character. I like her a lot. But uh, seeing her kind of be disrespected by the adults who she's positive thinks she's amazing is very satisfying sometimes.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, Jay, you live in New York City. Does that actually happen with, you know, uh, superheroes or famous people in general?
1: So allegedly it happens with famous people but the thing is i'm most i'm pretty much face blind and so it's entirely possible that i've had celebrity encounters in new york city directly or at a distance and just haven't realized it um i will say that people i know who've lived there longer definitely have um in fact t basically had the the jubilee thing ha- that thing happened not not exactly actually um she uh jake gillenhall apparently was not looking where he was going and and the two of them bumped into each other and she dropped a bunch of stuff and apparently he was very friendly about like helping to pick it back up that's all i really know about that oh and um a friend of ours was worried for a really long time that janine garofalo would think that he was stalking her because they lived near enough to each other that he perpetually found himself like a block behind her on commutes
0: oh well that's very awkward i hope she wasn't too freaked out
1: I have no idea, but, um, but yeah, no, so, um, I guess that's stuff that happens. Again, it hasn't been part of my experience of New York City that I know of.
0: Okay, okay. Well, I'm also wondering if it happens to the delightful little turtle who's randomly wandering by in the corner of a panel with racing stripes and the number 5 in the same font as from Speed Racer's Mach 5 painted on its shell. But just does this. He's like Yoshitaka Amano in Final Fantasy arc. There are always just little critters randomly wandering around for no reason.
1: I love that turtle.
0: I mean, you love Speed Racer and it's in the Gen- Generation X comic. Of course you do.
1: Also, turtles are good.
0: Turtles are pretty good.
1: I am a fr- I try to be a friend to reptiles.
0: Hmm, that's wise. So, Generation X is here a killing time because they're supposed to meet Emma Frost at the Frost Foundation, her rich people business, soon. Unfortunately, while three of them are ready, Monet is entirely unresponsive. She's just standing stock still, staring off into space. Not the first time this has happened.
1: Um, now, this, as as we'd alluded to, is is a byproduct or is intended to be a foreshadowing of the fact that she's actually her two younger sisters sharing, um, sharing a body. Long story, we'll get there later. But mostly what it is in context is inconvenient, because on one hand, she's fairly small. They should be able to pick her up. On the other hand, she's super strong and she's got some powers. So if she doesn't want to go anywhere, she's not going anywhere.
0: There is this delightful panel... Of Jubilee, Skin, and Sink, all just bracing on each other, trying to budge Monet at all, and her just absentmindedly looking in a different direction. But does physical comedy so well. Like, everyone's body language is extremely exaggerated, and it totally works.
1: So, I mentioned sort of the, the Nightcrawler-Banshee parallel before, but this, too, really made me think of Alan Davis, because... Boccello and Davis are both really masters of this kind of physical comedy, and they do it in very different ways. They've got very different styles, but the result is a really similar feel, which is very cool.
0: It totally is, yeah. We should mention here at this point, we've mentioned on the podcast before that the whole thing with M really being her two younger sisters doing the psionic equivalent of standing on each other's shoulders inside a trench coat— was unintentional and was later retconned, uh, we were totally incorrect. This was planned from the start, from Monet's inception, way back in the Phalanx Covenant, so uh, Mia culpa, sorry about the misinformation, now you know.
1: In our defense, I feel like the odds were on the side of it being entirely winged. It is a Scott Lobdell comic. Well, and it's not very well done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Um, it gets interesting later, and then it gets really, really weird. So, while they're hanging out trying to figure out what to do about M, Skin runs into an old acquaintance. He's actually from New York City himself. Apparently, everybody in the city thought Skin
1: was dead. So, Angelo does what you do under those circumstances, which is take the guy aside, shove a finger down his throat, and threaten to suffocate him if he tells anybody that he saw Skin. Um, This is basically also the Charles Xavier approach.
0: Uh, yeah, but with, like, cramming yards and yards of your weird floopy gray skin down somebody's throat instead of just mind-wiping them.
1: I feel like it's more straightforward, possibly more ethical.
0: Hard to say, but man, again with that gross but effective powers trope we keep coming back to in Generation X, very much that. That's the thing. Skin's power sounds terrible. He's got extra skin and it's prehensile, but the way he uses it is often just so brutal and merciless. That's one thing they really didn't get right in the Generation X TV movie, Um, one of a number of things, but uh, in that, Skin's power seem to be purely a liability. Instead of being a liability, that could also be used in gruesome ways. That you can understand why humans would be scared of.
1: The more I read of this, the more its spiritual successor, or at least its its first spiritual successor, feels like the the first Jason Aaron Wolverine in the X Men series with actually Pachalo on art.
0: Yeah, in terms of all the kids with all the really weird, awkward powers.
1: Yeah, like I feel like Snot really belongs in this team.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, after Angelo has threatened to murder an old friend, the kids, since they're still running late, decide to take a taxi to go find Emma, who can hopefully use her telepathy or her bustier or something to convince Em to move. As they're in the taxi, I love this. Jubilee is just going on and on about how when she was in the X-Men, they would improvise like this all the time, thus overinflating what they're actually doing, which is just taking a fucking taxi and telling yet another when I was in the X-Men story, which you immediately get the idea she will not stop doing to her teammates. I love what a pain in the ass Jubilee is. Like, I love that she's legitimately annoying.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's true of all of these kids. Like, they're, they feel very, very real in good ways and bad, and all of that is what, part of what makes them feel fleshed out as characters. Like None of them feel like the, you know, too-perfect-to-quite-work, because they're all difficult and complicated and very human.
0: And again, I think that's one of the ways that at least early Generation X is a completely worthy successor to New Mutants. Yeah, agreed. Unfortunately, before Jubilee can be even more of a pain in the butt, the car is smashed, the driver is killed, and as they get out to see what's up, they find all these corpses staked to the wall with bone shards in front of a painted
1: tic tac toe board. This is, by the way, at their destination. So these are these are um, frost, frost foundation employee. I, I think it's 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 sometimes sometimes it's frost foundation, sometimes it's frost industries, sometimes it's frost enterprises. I believe it's frost foundation here. But these are these are employees and security guards from the frost foundation.
0: Do you think that sometimes they're called the frosty friends? I don't. Oh, well, I'm going to call them that, and they're dead, so they can't tell me otherwise. Wow, harsh. The kids immediately suit up in their rad red and yellow uniforms, because of course they do, even as they get a telepathic message from Emma Frost telling them to stay the hell away. And this is very New Mutants, this is a bunch of kids in completely over their heads being gung-ho about trying to do the right thing anyway.
1: And of course, they they don't. They head straight into the elevator, which is immediately attacked by Hemingway. He's there, he's got his little knit cap, he's got his pipe, he's got a six-toed cat. And he's like, anyone want to wrestle? (laughs) Despite the name, it is
0: not that Hemingway. Instead, it's this enormous gray dude who looks kind of like if Sam Keith's The Max was, well, gray, but was also covered in these bone spurs and body armor that kind of intermingled with the bone spurs. Bocello does hulking monsters so well, and Hemingway is like the quintessential Bocello hulking monster.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The kids, being
0: uh, well trained, dodge out of the way of all the smashy and paley badness and confront Hemingway, who's surprised to see his own kind, not humans. He was figuring he was just murdering more humans, which, by the way, he totally helps murder the humans down below. Jubilee's kind of offended about being called his kind.
1: We're Generation X. We don't have a kind.
0: And I really appreciate two things. One, that she yells that as she and Sink are charging into battle with her very colorful powers, and two, that in her word balloon, Generation X is just the logo of the comic. Sometimes that bugs me, but I feel like Jubilee is allowed to do that.
1: Well, a specific power of Generation X in connection to their deep deep but irony-based connections to popular culture and entertainment is the ability to speak in logos.
0: Okay, so you're saying that if we were just a couple years older than we are, uh, instead of just being able to, I don't know, buy avocado toast instead of a house, we would be able to speak in logos.
1: Well, we're we're like we're cusp millennial generation X, depending on which calendar you're going after. So all we can really do is die of dysentery in like bright green on black backgrounds.
0: Oh, I I feel like we um we did not luck out there. No. There's this great panel of these translucent images of Jubilee flipping all around Hemingway and zapping him from various directions. It's hard enough for an artist to draw motion coherently across multiple panels, but Cello here draws it completely coherently within one panel. It's it's so good. And after that, Sink uses his rainbow aura thing to somehow knock Hemingway through the wall. Like, I guess Sink synced up with Hemingway's I Am Very Strong powers and thus did a blast of pure strong?
1: I mean... Let's be fair, Sync's powers are basically fancy CGI, as plot requires it.
0: I don't feel bad about that. Behind the rubble created by all of this destruction is… Hey! It's Artie Maddox! It's a little pink kid from X Factor! I love that kid! Oh man, okay, so for any listeners who weren't around for many 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 episodes ago, Jay, who is Artie Maddox and why do we love him?
1: Artie Maddox is a pink kid with a huge head whose father turned Hank McCoy briefly back from his blue form, but was associated with him at the corporation where he originally took the chemicals that turned him into the, the blue furry beast um, in, as part of a horrible experiment and hopes to turn Artie human. However, he was eventually attacked by his own allies. I believe they're right. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's been so long. I don't remember.
1: Anyway, a bunch of bad guys. Um, Killed Dr. Maddox, who was his last move, told X-Factor, okay, it's okay, you can just take my kid, take care of him. Artie speaks entirely in projected images. He's awesome. His BFF is Leech, who is also awesome. They are collectively the eternal adorable moppets. They are. They're the pink kid and the green kid. I love them so
0: much. And spoiler, they're going to be major players in Generation X for a long time, and I'm so excited we get to see more of them.
1: Oh, right on.
0: Now the last time we saw Artie and Leech, because they're pretty much inseparable at this point and will be, well, up until even the present day, they were at St. Simon's Boarding Academy in Exeter. They've been there since the Exterminators miniseries in the Inferno crossover, so for quite a while.
1: They were raising some hell with Taki, yeah?
0: They were, they were raising some hell with Taki the Wizkid. So, Artie quickly shows the kids who rescued him some imagery of what happened to Leech. And one of the things I like about Artie's powers is they're not always literal in their portrayal of what he's thinking about. So, in this case, we see Hemingway and some scary-looking spiky lady carrying Leech away, but they're carrying him up these irregular stairs into this evil-faced demonic tree with... Signs that say, ugly mutants only, and secret entrance painted all around, like it looks all nightmarish, because that's how Artie sees it. He's a kid and he's scared.
1: Oh, Artie's so good.
0: He is. So where's Emma Frost? We know that she's around here somewhere, this was where she was supposed to meet the kids, and we know that she was able to easily send them a telepathic message.
1: Emma is uh, cinematically captured, she is tied up with a ton of ribbons or some kind of tape, it's that flat stuff that's all over the 90s for some reason, uh, That that's not dryer tubing, um, on top of a uh, grocery butcher display case full of human bones. Did they just bring that for dramatic effect, or was it already in her office?
0: Is this part confusing? It almost seems like she's in a grocery store, so maybe they're not in Frost Industries? It's kind of ambiguous, but everything looks pretty cool and creepy, so, like, that's fine.
1: I'm gonna go ahead and call this disco mortician Syndrome. Ah,
0: okay, that makes a lot
1: of sense. Where you've got the buildings and businesses around Gene Nation just paying no attention to continuity.
0: A listener recently mentioned, I'm sorry, I don't remember who, I would credit them, that apparently there was an editor's note at one point after that issue, where there was the morgue that looked like a destroyed nightclub, that that was just straight up an error. So uh, apparently we weren't the only ones that noticed that something was wrong.
1: I can't accept that, I'm sorry. I am Team Disco Morgue for life.
0: Team Disco Morgue for life. And death. (laughs) Yes, also that. So... The scary-looking woman we saw, who, no surprise, that is, in fact, Marrow of Gene Nation, is painting clown makeup onto Emma's face with presumably the same paint used for the tic-tac-toe game downstairs.
1: I thought the tic-tac-toe game was done in blood, and that's what I thought was going on here at first, but there are paint buckets, and, like, one of them's green, so I think this is just paint. I
0: think so, yeah. I actually kind of like this. I like the idea that Gene Nation is that cavalier about murder, that they're just, like, fucking around playing tic-tac-toe and making people look dumb with buckets of paint amid all the carnage.
1: Okay, but that also means one of two things, which are either that Frost Foundation had buckets of orange and green paint sitting around, which I cannot see being the case, or alternately, that Marrow and Hemingway brought gallons of paint with them.
0: Well, we know there's a butcher's case here, so maybe this is like a grocery store disco morgue Home Depot.
1: Okay. Disco Depot. Home. Home. Disco Morgue. I don't know.
0: The only reason Emma hasn't telepathically told these people to turn themselves inside out is because Leech, the aforementioned captured best friend of Artie, whose power it is to cancel out nearby superpowers, is here. Her telepathy isn't working at all. We've got a full Moppet pair. We do, although they're not in the same room yet.
1: A case of Moppet's. Like a case of rapiers.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, that totally works. So, as we alluded to before, Marrow is here, along with Hemingway, and Pacello's Marrow is perfect. We've seen her before in X-Men Prime, and she's still wearing that same weird, asymmetrical, tiny costume with, like, random objects just sort of strapped to it. She's still very, very busty, but she looks monstrous. There are these painful-looking bone spurs, just irregularly jutting out of various parts of her. Like, at one point she pulls this bone out of her head with which to threaten Emma, and just leaves this, like,
1: meaty, hollow, gushing blood. It is so freaking gross. And that's kind of awesome. It's also weird that she seems to spontaneously generate, not like bone spikes, but like specific bones from other parts of her body. Oh, it's kind of like in Mortal
0: Kombat, where you punch someone and they explode into bones, except the bones are like 24 femurs, 6 rib cages, and 3 skulls?
1: Yeah, like it seems weird that that a bone in her skull would, would generate with like a joint end.
0: I don't know, mutant powers are weird. I gotta say though, like, we know Leech cancels out powers, so presumably there's something about her bone generating powers that makes it so it doesn't cause her to bleed to death and die? With Leech nearby, should she
1: really be doing this? I assume, based on where he is, that his powers are only affecting Emma, or at least are, are affecting a narrower radius.
0: Maybe, maybe. Well, regardless, when Emma asks Mero why they killed all these, those people in the disco back in Uncanny, Marrow's pretty confident in her answer.
1: Because they were human. Because they got to live and laugh and party up world while my ancestors, the Morlocks, were always sentenced to muck and mire and mud. All that. And we felt like it.
0: Marrow's going to be on the X-Men for a long time in the future, and that weirds me out because she is like super evil at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's definitely a mass murderer.
0: We learn that these two members of Gene Nation, Hemingway and Marrow, captured Leech not just to use his powers on Emma, but also because, according to them, he's the last one of the weak, cowardly original Morlocks, so he has to die. But wait a minute, there are plenty of other Morlocks around! Caliban is right over there in X-Force! The Kaya Santos sisters are in jail, we just talked about one of them in that cable issue. Skids? She's off being sad in space because
1: her sex got interrupted and then her boyfriend got melted. Maybe they mean that he is the last of the original Morlocks who is both tractable and reasonably accessible.
0: That that may be true. So Emma, realizing that Leech is really the only reason that she's powerless, just uses her bondage rig that she's in, made of ribbons, and just swings out, kicks Leech in the face, and knocks him unconscious, which is the most Emma Frost move I can think of. She
1: does apologize first.
0: Uh, True, but I have a feeling she doesn't fully mean it. And at that point, her telepathy's back, she damn near fries the brains of Gene Nation. Like, the art shows them all looking hollow and skeletal. That doesn't make literal sense that telepathy would do that, but it does make kind of emotional, Mm -hmm. visceral
1: sense, so I'm fine with it. Well, she also makes it clear that what she did should have fried their brains, but for some reason they are inured to it for no reason other than that they're evil.
0: Evil's very powerful. It uh, gives you a 5 damage resistance uh, every time.
1: It's as good as dumb.
0: hmm The rest of Generation X uses Sync's rainbow aura and its ill-defined nature to track down Emma, and they get there just in time, not to save Emma, but to at least, I don't know about stop her, but maybe distract her from murdering the helpless members of Gene Nation.
1: Because Emma is, first and foremost, a fairly good teacher, and she's not going to murder these people right in front of all of her students right now. She's taking a different approach this time.
0: Exactly. As all this goes on, we the readers are not the only one watching voyeuristically. So is… Dark Beast. You know, the version of Hank McCoy from Age of Apocalypse? The wicked geneticist who doesn't give a shit about human, or for that matter, mutant life? Yeah, he escaped the Age of Apocalypse. He's hanging out in Earth-616 now, and he decides to just blow the whole place up and kill everyone. He's expedient. He is. Thankfully, they all survive because Emma got a one-instant telepathic note from a familiar presence nearby. We're going to learn that she and Dark Beast have weird, confusing, randomly retconned history. For now, it's just a hint.
1: Yeah, we've, I think we've done a cold open about that.
0: I think you may be right, yeah. So the heroes all escape the rubble of wherever the hell they were, leaving Leech to ask,
1: White Queen? Yes? Please don't kick Leech again.
0: Aw. After that, the kids head back to the X-Mansion to hang out a little, and I do appreciate that they're wearing the black and yellow X-Men training uniforms while they're there.
1: Is this sorry? Is this because their their red and yellow uniforms got blown up? Uh,
0: possibly. In which case, maybe we should retroactively take a drink. But would that be weird? they're teenagers. Hard yeah, to they're say. They're
1: teenagers. Take a drink. A, take a sip of soda.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, it's the '90s. Maybe Jolt Cola.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or Surge.
0: Or Ecto Cooler.
1: That's not soda. It's high C.
0: Pretty much, but with Slimer on the packaging. Anyway, as Emma talks to Professor X about this worrying New Gene Nation thing. Jubilee goes into the woods to look for her father figure slash mentor slash best friend, Logan.
1: I love the way Chris Patala draws Wolverine. Oh god,
0: he's just this hulking mass of Neanderthal muscle and body hair. He's enormous, far bigger than he should be, far less human looking than he should be. And it fits. The feel of it is like pure Logan, even if the literal elements aren't. That's what Pacello does. He doesn't draw stuff realistically, but he draws it in a way that evokes exactly the right response from the
1: reader. Well, and even the etch-a-sketch period is very much a stylistic movement. Like, it's good, it's just not great for coherent narrative. But it's very much like a lot of that stylization taken further than its logical extreme.
0: Pretty much.
1: Wolverine's
0: de-evolution that happened after he lost his adamantium, that's been proceeding more and more and more. It hasn't gotten to the point where he doesn't have a nose yet, but it's getting there. He's not licking people yet. Not yet, no. What Wolverine is, though, is proud of Jubilee. He's proud that she's decided to go to school, to learn to control her powers so that she can be a better X-Man. Specifically, he's proud of her, like... He was her father, and she was his daughter, and he explicitly tells her that, and it's adorable.
1: And and gives, gives her, of course, the, the proper parental t- t- pep talk for the circumstances.
0: Promise me you'll stay in school and learn about your powers, so nothing like this ever happens to you.
1: I promise, Wolvie. I totally miss you.
0: That's nice, kid. I miss me too.
1: I get what he's going for, but it's pretty cold. He's just sad.
0: Sad and cold. And then, from afar, the girl's dormitory explodes with a blast that is clearly Chambers Powers. The end! For Chris Buscello for the moment, because this is his last issue before he leaves Marvel for almost a year to go work on the Death, the Time of Your Life miniseries for Vertigo. Ah. Uh-huh. Aw. And so that is our return to Generation X and Earth 616, and man, this comic has not missed a beat. It is still fucking stellar, just like the first four issues were. Like, I know Generation X gets less good as it goes, as the creative teams shift and as the plot sort of meanders, but right now, early Gen X is just great.
1: I love how stylistically different it is from all of the rest of the books of the line. Like, there, there's some degree of individual feel to them, but they're becoming more and more homogenous, and this one still very much stands out as its own thing.
0: Absolutely. You know who else
1: stands out as their
0: own things? Our listeners, and they've got questions.
1: We've only got one this week, because it is such an absolute goddamn monkey's paw of a question. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, which X-Men storylines would you guys like to see adapted in the MCU X-Men reboot?
0: Well, I mean, that's obvious. Let's just do the Dark Phoenix saga. That worked really well the first two times.
1: Oh goddamn no, I I was talking- I was talking with, with Max of Waiting for the Trade about this earlier. And and I gotta say I really liked his initial suggestion, which was Curse of the Mutants. But if I were gonna do that, I would probably also pull in some, some elements from the timeline where Wolverine is king of the vampires, just so I could use we could use, you know, the line that, that vampires may already be in control of Earth's nuclear arsenal.
0: Oh man, and I did hear that they were gonna be rebooting Blade soon, so we could introduce the X-Men and Blade in one big mess of a terrible, wonderful crossover.
1: Seriously though, what I would do if I were in charge of this stuff, um, which I'm really glad I'm not. <laughs> because there's a lot of pressure and layers of approvals involved there. But what I would do is um, I would actually go with an alternate universe and or time travel story. I would probably do something along the lines of what either the Wolverine and the X-Men cartoon did or the animated series did in terms of mashing up a couple dark futures um, and I would have it be about a group of characters trying to avert that timeline which would give the X-Men a context for suddenly being and always have been retconned into the MCU timeline. I really like that, yeah. And
0: I think one of the reasons I most like it is that it's hard to do a first X-Men story. Because you think about some of the iconic ones. You think about, say, the Dark Phoenix Saga, or the Demon Bear Saga, or Days of Future Past, or like any of the really big ones. You have to know a lot about the X-Men's baseline. You have to know about mutants being hated and feared, and Professor X making this team to you know defend them nonetheless, the world slowly discovering them. And those stories, while necessary for the X-Men to work, are kind of boring. Like, the Cape Citadel X-Men versus Magneto story from X-Men number one was the perfect introduction to the X-Men, and far, far, far from the best story.
1: Well, what you do in that case too, the other thing that you get from that, is a reason for the X-Men to be outsiders. That it's not just that they have inherent powers, it's that they have inherent powers, but they come from this very, very different world. So to an extent, what you've got is a cast full of, of the equivalents of, of Lucas Bishop in the 616. Not precisely, but characters who are coming from a paradigm that's, that's pretty much primed them to not trust anyone— and with attitudes and with with the setting and, and a context that primes the rest of the world not to trust them.
0: Do you think that changes what the X Men are too much to have mutants not just be like your child could be one, but literal like cross dimensional
1: invaders? No, you, they're not invaders; they're refugees. But what what no? What you do is have them come back and have basically mutants suddenly start manifesting around the time that they do. So that the mutants who are manifesting are associated with, you know, this group that no one knows quite what to make of that may or may may not be dangerous. And so you've got a reason then suddenly that everyone sees mutants as a threat because this thing heralded their arrival. And what if they're part of some some bigger plot attached to it?
0: And I guess that's not without precedent. I mean, the big event in the Marvel Cinematic Universe right now that everything revolves around is Thanos' snap, which was like one of the most civilization-defining events you can possibly have. And so if we're in a world where that sort of thing has precedent, where that sort of thing happens, maybe it fits a little better than it would if the mutant's incursion slash arrival just came out of nowhere.
1: And again, this is this is all thought experimenting. This is all assuming that they could do it exactly right and you know, that I, I got to pull the strings on this. But I think that, that I think that, that is the most organic and effective way you could work the X-Men into the MCU and the concept of mutants into the MCU. And I think, again, part of why I like it is you'd, you'd get to work with the, the X-Men's original purpose. You'd get to have them as, as this sort of the anti-establishment group and as, as the, the resistant group whom other superheroes mistrusted with varying degrees of validity. You'd get to have mutants a thing, but you'd also get to have a context that was very distinct from the comics. I think that adaptations tend to fare the least well when they're basically next door to the original, when they try so hard to hew to the original content that they they never quite are able to take off that they're on their own, that they they end up basically bogged down by it rather than using it as a springboard. Hmm.
0: Yeah, either way, I don't think there's really a transparent way to work the X-Men into the MCU, with the MCU being so different at this point than the Marvel Universe in which the X-Men originated.
1: I mean... Curse of the
0: Mutants. Curse of the Mutants. Co-starring Blade. Perfect! We're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's hear from the good old angry Claremontian narrator.
1: You believed yourself to be done with Sabrina Dax, Frank Hinnendale, but they have proven far more resilient than you could possibly have imagined. And so your struggle continues and continues and continues through time, through space, ad infinitum, ad nauseam, ad tedium, with every skirmish as ultimately pointless as the last. Ouch.
0: Well, let's be a little less dour and remind you once again, hey, j of Cyclops comic! You can go buy it in just a few days.
1: That is X-Men Marvel's snapshots, we'll put in a link to, to the order information for that, um, as well as at least our favorite comic shop that you could order it from, but uh, you know, you do you, choose your own, etc. Or don't buy it, it's okay. I, feel, I always feel really weird asking people to buy things in general. Um, but, you know, if you want to, you can. Um, yeah, that. And with that, Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts,
1: Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
1: Next week, we finish our post-apocalypse world tour with Excalibur as... No, we don't. We don't? X-Men Marvel
0: Snapshot will have just come out. Whoa whoa wait, do I get a week off to celebrate? Hell no, I'm gonna interview you. What?